When my kids were little in the 80s and early 90s, they loved going to Grandma and Grandpa's house in Port Wing, Wisconsin on windy days in late spring and summer because a big pasture out front was exactly the right place to fly a kite. Those same windy days were exactly wrong for me to go birding. It's extra work for birds to sing or to listen to songs against the noise of the wind. So many birds stay quiet when it's windy, and I never felt like I was missing bird action when out with kite-flying kids. I did lug Katie and Tommy along for birding one windy day in the late 1980s when a King Eider appeared in Grand Marais. My preschoolers were perfectly content playing in the car on the long drive up, but the moment I opened the car door for us to get out and see the bird, Tommy said, too much windy, and would not leave the car. After all that, the bird was nowhere to be seen anyway. As with unusually hot days, unseasonably warm winters, wildfires, floods, droughts, hurricanes, tornadoes, and fluctuating sea levels, windy days are nothing new. But half a century ago, college professors were already talking about climate change and how all those weather and climate phenomena would be increasing in frequency and intensity as the atmosphere heated up. Russ and I took that very seriously, but we were outliers. Even as predictions about climate change grew more and more dire, major corporations and the best politicians money could buy not only minimized the danger, they actively denied that climate change was happening at all, launching huge misinformation campaigns that made global warming seem like a trivial partisan issue for tree huggers and Al Gore groupies, rather than the genuine and accelerated crisis it is. Meanwhile, we birders can't help but notice how climate change is already affecting wildlife. Canada jays are dying out in the more southerly parts of their range as winter thaws spoil the hoarded food reserves they need for feeding their nestlings. Red-bellied woodpeckers are steadily moving north as the large stands of hardwood trees they require slowly replace dying northern conifers. When Russ and I were in Alaska last summer, we thrilled at the moose we saw until we realized that all this abundance was due to melting permafrost shifting forests northward at the expense of the tundra, leading to losses of caribou. And in the Everglades last month, our only view of a critically declining subspecies of the seaside sparrow was a quick, distant glimpse in an area that was once a stronghold for this unique freshwater population. Rising sea levels had led to saltwater intrusion in what had been freshwater sawgrass, and now mangroves were taking over. In Duluth, this winter was warmer than average despite our record-setting snowfall, but spring has been later and a bit colder than average with a great many days characterized by extreme wind, sometimes exceeding 40 miles per hour. Lately, we've been seeing murky brown haze from smoke from enormous wildfires blown here all the way from Saskatchewan and Alberta. 
Twice I watched an evening grosbeak take off from a branch only to get whipped by gusts into other branches. What is too much windy for a 30-pound toddler close to the ground is way too much windy for a two-ounce bird trying to fly. And high winds are loud. I think I have the same number of robin pairs near my yard as I did last year when three or four different males were singing every morning before dawn, but many mornings this year they weren't bothering to sing, I suspect, because of the wind. It may have been strong westerly winds that blew a lark bunting off course right into my neighborhood this past Sunday. And Monday, a blue-gray gnatcatcher appeared with a small warbler flock in the back of my daughter's yard along Tisher Creek. So many miraculous little creatures are doing their best to survive in the face of too much windy and everything else our species is doing to this planet we share with so many others. I'm Laura Erickson, speaking for the birds.